Now's a good time to thank our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions. There's a lot of great things about this relationship. Like us, Survivors for Solutions wants to see continued innovation in the pharmaceutical space. They embrace the free market and believe that the free market is the best solution to improve patient lives. It was founded by our close friend CZ or John Swartaki. CZ founded the group when he saw the damage that the Inflation Reduction Act was gonna bring to the pharmaceutical ecosystem. He's been a patient, and Eric, I think you'll talk about that in a minute, but he's been a patient for several decades himself, and he wants solutions not just for himself, but for his family and friends and for Americans in the future. And he knows how important it is for continued pharmaceutical innovation to happen here in the United States, because if it doesn't, it won't happen anywhere. Joe, you're right. CZ is a longtime friend of both of ours and a seasoned Washington pro, but what most people don't know is that John Swartaki has also suffered from multiple sclerosis for over 30 years. He was diagnosed and has required four different breakthrough drugs over the course of this disease in order to just live. All these drugs have been developed in a robust ecosystem of medical discovery and delivery, an ecosystem that the Inflation Reduction Act and President Biden now threaten. That threatens the hope and security and safety, the liberty, and ultimately the lives of millions of Americans suffering from chronic, debilitating, or life-threatening disease. He formed Survivors for Solutions to help save this system so others like himself have the chance at a fulfilling and robust life. You can learn more about CZ and his lifelong struggle with multiple sclerosis from our March 27th DC EKG interview plus his website, survivorsforsolutions.org, or on Twitter, at Hope Matters Most. Joe, we're really fortunate. CZ is our leader here at DCEKG, and we look forward to advocating on his behalf and the behalf of millions of American patients in the years to come on our show. Welcome back to DC EKG with Eric Euland and myself, Joe Grogan. We're here today with Naomi Lopez from the Goldwater Institute talking about a whole host of regulatory issues in healthcare. Naomi, uh, we were just talking about uh, Medicare and right to try and the drug pricing legislation with the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, one of the things I've I've been mulling over for the last couple years, frankly, uh, without much success to, to, uh, to, to show for it is the fact that I spent, you know, the first half of my career worried on this FDA side, getting, getting products approved. And now the threat is on reimbursement. We haven't had the type of innovation on the reimbursement side. And we had all this emphasis, you know, Michael Milken had set up faster cures to get drugs sped through the FDA process. And there were numerous prescription drug user fee act reauthorizations, focused on newer approvals and nothing on the reimbursement side, but you're starting to see a few things perhaps to break up the drug delivery system and reimbursement system. Do you want to talk a little bit about what we're seeing there and and maybe uh, the private sector innovating and beginning to, to fulfill a need? Yes, so we do know that with some of these incredible medical innovations come high costs of the treatments and the the actual price of the treatment 
may be very high, several hundred thousand dollars, for example. But if it's an actual cure, if it is something that makes the patient better for many years to come, it is oftentimes very cost effective to use that treatment. Unfortunately, that is not in alignment with how our current insurance model works. So there have, there, we not only have to rethink insurance and how we pay for treatments, but I think that we're also seeing some really positive innovations taking place in the private sector, where for example, a drug company may say, look, um, our treatment is $500,000. Let's price it at um, reimbursing 20% every year for the next five years if the patient is hitting the outcome markers, the outcome goals of this treatment, so that there is a, so that the price that is actually paid by the insurance is, is, is tethered to the outcome of the patient, especially in these higher cost treatments. So we are seeing innovation there. It's happening slowly, but I think we're gonna see it accelerate as more of these very high priced drugs get approvals, get approvals. And, and so, but, but it's a longer term issue. When we think about the way treatments work, the way they've been approved, they've really been for very large populations. That is the way the clinical trial process currently works. It's for a larger population, not for an individual, but we now have that potential to create treatments for one person in many cases or small groups of people. And so in, in a lot of ways, that kind of a reimbursement is very, very different than what it was just you know, even a decade or two ago. And so we'll have, to rethink, we'll have to rethink insurance as well, but we also simultaneously have to rethink how healthcare works. When Medicare, for example, and Social Security were established, people weren't living that long. Um, it's changed, fortunately. We've got longer lifespans. People have the opportunity and potential to live much longer. And we also have the ability to intervene in some of these um, longer prolonged illnesses in a way to actually make the patient much healthier for a longer period of time. So when we think about aging, that's another component I think that lawmakers and policymakers are going to have to think long and hard about and where we as a free market community have a real opportunity to help that innovation take place. Um, because we are living different, we um, are, will probably be aging in very different ways than we were just a decade or two ago going forward. And it's all great news, but it is you know, potentially going to be um, something that has to be paid for in different ways than what we've been doing in the past. Let me, let me stop you right there uh, and then I'll let Eric uh, chime in. And sorry for being rude, but I just want to clarify the, um, you know, that those value-based payment arrangements that you talked about where if the drug works, you get paid over time, you know, 20% one year. I mean, that had to be done for, uh, courtesy of the Trump administration issuing a rule allowing that to be done. I think that's a great example of the the regulatory, the regulation, the regulatory structure was changed and then companies responded. Now, it's not always simple to, to measure outcomes uh, depending on, on the disease state, but uh, it's it, it's proof positive that regulatory reform into your you know life's work deregulation can have responses in the in the private sector. When you think about the the innovation that other types of innovation or or laws that you'd like to see addressed as we age, what what are you focusing on? What should the right of center and libertarian movement be be thinking about? So right now I'm doing a lot of thinking and, um, and and talking to stakeholders and other folks in the policy community, oftentimes the other side of the aisle, um, 
about how we think about aging and what policies we need to be pursuing. So for example, um, the idea of granny cottages, these smaller dwellings that may be, for example, behind a larger house where um, an older parent can live. You know, we've, we've, got, this, um, we've got this generation where, you know, where we've got aging parents and we've got kids and we've got childcare issues on both ends. This is one of the really, I think, important innovations that can take place. It's not high tech, it's low tech actually, where you allow for these cottages to be built in, in a backyard, for example, um, when it's not dealing with um, issues of, um, of public welfare, for example, having enough water to put out a fire, for example, when you're not imposing you know, those types of um, um, burdens on the public works infrastructure, it should be legal and to do, to do so. And whenever you couple that with things like telehealth and remote monitoring and diagnostics, you really can see a future where aging Americans have more options to age in their community or age near their families. So this is going to be a really important budget driver as well at the state level because at the state level, states pay for long-term care um, for, for, for their indigent aging um, citizens. So we're really looking at a situation where we have the opportunity to not only um, allow for innovation, allow for happier aging Americans because people don't want to go into a nursing home, um, but, but also something that will not squeeze out as much in terms of transportation education spending because you won't have to spend as much on long-term care for the population. So that's one of the areas where I think not only do we, uh, do we need to establish policies that make it easier to age in the community, but also we've got to be thinking long and hard too about, about how we pay for treatments because um, we're, we're going to live much longer. We're going to be much healthier. I just, cycled, um, I just cycled yesterday at a cycling event and there were a lot of people in their 60s and even some in their 70s cycling across, um, you know, cycling for, for dozens of miles through the countryside. You know, this is not, you know, this is not the same generation that we saw, you know, last go around or the, or, or the generation prior to that. People are going to be more active and healthier down, you know, as, as they get older, and that's great news, but it also creates other, you know, other problems to solve in, in the policy sphere and, and, and from a fiscal perspective as well. So those kids in Breaking Away 45 years ago cycling are still doing it today, which is actually a great point. You mentioned the insurance agencies or insurance companies and the industry having to rethink about how you value the cost and the benefits of these life-extending, life-affirming drugs. But it isn't just them, it's businesses as well, it's the Office of Management and Budget, it's a congressional budget office, and it's each state budget office, which has such a significant hold on the difficulties of making sure that people begin to appreciate not just the benefit upside, but then how to reflect that on the books to help foster this culture of innovation, but also drive an expansion of the types of healthcare that we're able to provide, especially as our population continues to age. So you mentioned a lot of this uh, policy definitely plays out on the state level. And as Joyce, Joe said, what would you like to do if you had a magic wand to wave? I'm curious as well on the state level with so much where health care is actually delivered. Other things that people who are listening to this podcast should be focused on and the things that you're working on, the Goldwater Institute's working on, on the state level too. 
Yes, so some of um, some of the areas that I think people may not think about that often, but where states have enormous influence and authority are things like the practice of medicine. They states decide if your nurse practitioner can can write prescriptions and if so for what. They also decide, for example, if a new hospital can be built. There is something called a certificate of need where um, where a in some states, a, where a, a, a new facility or a would-be facility has to apply to a state board, and the board is often composed of the would-be competitors, to ask permission to build. Can you imagine a Trader Joe's having to beg Whole Foods and, and Aldi for permission to build, or a gas station, a, a Shell station having to, to, to ask Exxon if they can build down the street? That never happens in normal markets, but it happens in healthcare, unfortunately. So, so there are a lot of rules and regulations that limit access and affordability that are controlled under state legislative authority or, or state executive authority. And those are areas too, the supply side of healthcare where I spend a lot of time working. When you look at, um, at licensing of medical professionals, um, Arizona has led the way in um, what's called universal licensing, where if you cross the border, you don't automatically lose all of your skills that you had in your profession in the state that you moved from. So when you go into Arizona, if you you know you have to meet minimal requirements, of course, but you don't have to go through relicensing in order to practice your skill or craft or trade within the state. And and we've used that too for telehealth reform, where if you're in good standing in your state you are able to perform telehealth, you have to register with the state, but you're able to perform telehealth for Arizona patients um, if you're registered you know, under our telehealth law. So, so we really do have a lot of work at the state level as well to reform and improve access and affordability. And, and, and so you know, I work at the, both the federal and the state level on a lot of these issues because they intersect and cross constantly. So a lot of people with a lot of passion on healthcare policy, what got you interested in it? And why is the Goldwater Institute at the forefront of all these debates suddenly driving these sorts of key policy questions and innovating and leading change around the country? So I first started in healthcare policy in Washington, DC, and I really did like it um, because it's hard. It crosses tax policy, it's licensing, it's innovation, it's um, social insurance, social welfare. It is a hard policy area. So that, that automatically drew me towards it. And I'm still learning. I've you know, been doing this for a long time. But, but you know, I, could, I could clone myself 100 times and still not know the entire universe of healthcare policy. It's so broad and vast. And it's always challenging. Um, so um, the Goldwater Institute, um, we work a little bit different than some policy organizations in that we also have a litigation arm. When someone adopts our policy, if there's a legal challenge, we will go and stand shoulder to shoulder to ensure that that policy remains and stands. And you know that is something that you don't often see with a policy shop or policy organization. They might get something across the finish line, but they may not be able to, to win and then keep the win. We're able to do that far more effectively because we can go to court and we will defend it. That's a guarantee that, you know, that we will go to court and try to defend it. So we also, I think, focus a lot on strategy and um, going very deep into a policy area. And, and a lot of that is just understanding, um, for example, um, with um, 
for one example is just in this area of, of generics, of generic pharmacy, where we know that, um, for example, like Montelukast, which is the generic of Singular, the list price is $120. If you were to get it through GoodRx, which is an online platform, it's about 60. Through my employer plan, it's about $15. But when I get it through my direct primary care, uh, provider, which is it was just like a gym membership, I pay a monthly fee to get access to a provider, it's a dollar. And that dollar actually includes the brown bottle, which is about a quarter, 25 cents. Um, there are direct primary care providers in some states that actually provide maintenance medications for free because the generics are so inexpensive. And you've seen recently the rise of, for example, Mark Cuban's um, uh, cost yeah. plus. You've got mail order pharmacies, you've got row, you've got these new incumbents in the generic pharmacy space. Well, the reason that you've got these new entrants is because generics are actually really inexpensive. And so um, in order to truly understand why there isn't more price competition and transparency in the, in the generic pharmacy space, it's important to understand that the back end of pharmacy is what was really created by um, by PBMs <laughs> and funded by the federal government, by the way. And so my my proposed law, one of one of my model bills, is allowing for the seamless transfer of prescriptions using your mobile phone. And 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 it's not just basic. You don't have to go and stand at your pharmacy and beg them to transfer your prescription, which they don't want to do, and they probably don't even have time to do. It, it just says that you that it is legal to do that without when having... you say when you say transfer though you mean like you go to the pharmacy counter and you say hey listen this is too expensive or I you back off and you say wait can I get it somewhere else for cheaper is that what you're talking about you you are turned into a shopper on your phone for your pharmacy as opposed to going up being ignorant you have no idea what's going on. Well, so, so really there's a third party, uh, a non-dispensing pharmacy that would handle the actual transfer of the back end transfer of your prescription to someplace that has a better price without having to go back to the doctor, without having God. to pass go and pay $200, right? So, um, so it's that kind of thought about policy, the underlying, the underlying policy that make, you know, you, 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 if you pass a bill that says, oh, um, you can't, you know, you can't charge more than X amount for a prescription. That's not the same thing as giving the individual patient the power and authority to actually get the better price on their own, which can be much, much cheaper. And sometimes like, for example, um, like, like it has been shown in, in direct primary care for pennies and for some right. prescriptions or $5 that Mark Cuban is demonstrating now. So, so it really is, you know, healthcare policy is hard and that's why I like it, but it's also why I think we have not done as good of a job as we need to because there, it, it does require an enormous investment in time and understanding of what's actually going on. Right, right. Let me ask you a personal question back to this aging issue. Uh, none of us uh, looks as good. You look better than Euland, uh, of course. And everybody and looks better than Euland. Infinitely better than me. But what are, are you making any personal decisions uh, as you think about you're going to live longer maybe than uh, I don't know how old your parents live, but when you think about your life and you you said you were out biking, are you making any personal decisions? Have you already started building a cottage in your backyard? Are you thinking about how are you going to stay engaged and, and make sure that your retirement is secure and that you're going to stay healthy? I mean, what's what, if you're so focused on this for policy reasons, what are you doing personally on that front? 
So, um, so I eat really well. I drink a lot of water. Um, I take really good care of myself, get a lot of sleep. Um, but I also say you're really active. Um, every, every week I probably cycle, ride horses and play soccer. I ski as much as possible. Um, which these are also dangerous things and so skiing and horseback riding are extremely dangerous, but I do them also. Right. Well, that solves it. That solves your money problem in old age. If you, you go off the cliff, we would hate to see that though. <laughs> um, but, but I do, um, I do invest in my own health, um, and, and not just physical health, all, but also emotional, mental health. Um, I do a lot of meditation. Um, I spend time, you know, um, what I call, um, feeding my soul, not my ego. I try to do more of soul feeding as opposed to ego feeding as much as possible. Um, and I also make sure that I have a really good relationship with my direct primary care provider. I get labs every year. Um, I, you know, he's able to um, target things, emerging, potentially emerging problems. Um, and then I also just have good genes. I mean, that's also part of it as well. Um, but, but I, you know, I do take time and invest in it just like I, you know, would anything else. It sounds like uh, lifelong learning isn't just in the abstract for the industry and the profession, but also a personal avocation as well. Naomi, we really appreciate your time with us on these segments and your direct, expansive and focused answers to our questions. We hope you come back because I think this has been a great conversation. We've all learned a lot, and I think our listeners could continue to learn from you. Joe? Thanks a lot, Naomi. It was a great conversation uh, uh, on behalf of Eric and myself and, and our distributors, Evergreen and Big Wig Media. Uh, thanks, and we look forward to having you back. <laughs>